0: Hello, and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. Now, imagine the situation. A Conservative government fresh from a general election victory the year before, a Labour Party uncertain of its direction and torn between hardline left-wingers and moderates, and a Liberal Party trying to work its way up from a disappointing election result. We could be talking 2020, or 1993, or 1988, or 1980, or 1971, or 1960, or, well... You get the picture. Which is why I'm really pleased to welcome on the show this time Duncan Brack, environmental policy expert, former director of policy for the Liberal Democrats, and the closest thing the party has to an official historian with a string of publications he's written and edited with colleagues from the Liberal Democrat History Group. Welcome Duncan! For all that 2020 feels a very different year in British politics with both Brexit and coronavirus, it also feels, from the point of view of party politics, also in some ways quite a familiar type of year and therefore perhaps the party can learn from the past in working out where to go next. So Duncan, you've particularly written about lessons from the 1990s on what works and doesn't work for the Liberal Democrats. What are the lessons do you think are most relevant to the Lib Dems now? Well, thank
1: you for inviting me and it's good to be on to um, the only regular podcast I ever actually listen to myself. So it's good to be talking to you. So what I am I'm inter- in the
0: post on the way to you for that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I'll look forward to it. So what I've been interested in is um, what became known as the project, the cooperation between Paddy Ashdown and Tony Blair in the early to mid 1990s to try and uh, break down the conservative dominance of British politics, which had lasted since 1979. And this became quite relevant in the wake of the 1992 election, when in many ways, like the 2015 election, it looked like the two main parties, Tories and Labour, were sort of neck and neck during the election. And in fact, it ended up with the pollsters getting it all wrong, and in fact, the Conservatives won with uh, quite a comfortable majority, a bit bigger in 1992 than in mm. 2015. So um, this led uh, a period of in- to a period of introspection in the Labour Party about what they should do. And of course, in 2015, it led to Jeremy Corbyn. So it's a bit different there. But from our point of view, in the Liberal Democrats. It raised the question of whether, uh, what kind of cooperation there should be between the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats, Um, because it's worth mentioning, worth pointing out that in every single general election since the war, with the single exception of 1955, the combined Liberal or Liberal Democrat and Labour vote has always exceeded Conservative vote. Uh, And that's true even in 2015, 17 and 19 though only just on a couple of occasions. So the question always arises, well, um, in many ways, obviously there are differences, but there are many similarities, many overlaps between Liberal Democrat and Labour positions. What can we do to, to cooperate to try and stop the Conservatives just winning endless general elections on the minority of
0: the vote? In that where, very way that you've framed previous election results, there is an implication that the Liberal Democrats are naturally closer to Labour, than the Conservatives. And I think, certainly for people who say, describe themselves as being centre-left, which I think both of us would be, it's perhaps a matter of basic political spectrum distance measuring, that if you're starting on the centre-left, you may well be closer to a party that's on the left than a party that's on, on the right. But I think there definitely have been very extended periods of time, and there are still very particular issues on which there are very significant differences between Labour and the Liberal Democrats. I think it's notable how much more relaxed at the moment many in the Labour Party seem to be about the potential threats to our civil liberties from a world in which the government maybe has actually quite a good public health reason to be able to track all of our locations all of the time. Lots of Lib Dems are very nervous about what that might mean for future government power in a way that many in Labour are much more relaxed. So I guess one of the questions is, is why in the 1990s did it seem that Labour was the natural potential partner in whatever form for Liberal Democrats to turn to, rather than either the Liberal Democrats sticking on their own or, or, or looking towards other parties?
1: Yeah, that's a completely fair question. Of course, the Liberals and Liberal Democrats and the Labor Party are not the same. Um, And even if you would put us both on the centre left, which I would, um, we don't start from the same ideological underpinnings and we have different views about um, sort of human nature and the good society. And that certainly became pretty obvious during uh, the Labour governments after 1997, particularly on, as you were talking about, their attitudes to civil liberties and terrorism and the war in Iraq and everything like that. However, you can always point out the differences, but there are stronger, I would argue, similarities. And that's particularly true um, during periods of conservative government, because we tend to develop a kind of shared agenda on, for example, in the 90s, the main arguments were around Uh, investment in public services uh, and also a kind of constitutional reform agenda though perhaps we'll come on to that because the Liberal Democrats had an important role to play in the Labour Party's thinking there, but on, you know, devolution to Scotland and Wales, freedom of information legislation, reform in the House of Lords, etc. Et and these are things that the Conservatives would never have contemplated. Um, more recently, I think you can see quite strong overlaps between the two parties' positions on Brexit, for example, uh, you know, notwithstanding Jeremy mm. Corbyn, most Labour, most Labour voters, most Labour activists, mm. and most Labour MPs are anti-Brexit. Mm. Um, You can see strong overlaps on the environmental agenda, where I think the Labour, actually the Labour manifesto last year was pretty good on environmental issues. And, you know, the two of ours were much closer to each other than than either of us were to the Conservatives. So I think the areas of overlap are stronger than the areas of difference, uh, particularly when, as I said, there's a Conservative government in power. But that does mean you have to be very careful about the kind of cooperation you're going to pursue. And I think that was something that Paddy Ashdown understood during the uh, what became known as the project in the mid to late
0: 1990s. And just before we delve a little bit into what that actually meant in terms of what sort of cooperation he was interested in and what sort of cooperation he steered clear of, I guess one other thing that's worth reflecting on is that certainly within the Lib Dems, there are many people who are... In fact, maybe even the most vocal opponents of cozying up to Labour in any form comes actually from people, not necessarily who would view themselves as on the right of the party, but people who are, come from parts of the country where Labour is the local government establishment. So you have a lot of our colleagues, for example, in chunks of urban Northern England would definitely not describe themselves as being right-wingers in any sense, but are very vocal about how much difference there is between Labour and the Liberal Democrats. Um, and, And I guess what to me this partly illustrates is how much the electoral context matters, that if you have a party in power, and that may be in the council or in national government, whether that's Westminster, Holyrood or Cardiff, it is very natural for opposition parties to have some common grounds, which they can work together on because you are all opposition parties. Against them. And, and in that sense, it strikes me that, that maybe the Ashdown project would have played out with a Conservative party if Labour had been the party in government at the time that Ashdown was leader of. And, and, and so it's, it's easy to read, I think, too much into the ideological question when it's often a matter of practical politics.
1: Yes, I'd agree with that, and uh, obviously, where Labour in power, the the different in local government, the differences between our approaches are much more starkly demonstrated. And I would never close the door to Liberal Democrat Conservative cooperation. You know, I supported the coalition in 2010, and indeed ended up working as a special advisor to Liberal Democrat coalition minister for a couple of years. Um, But I think that uh, in general, and I mean, we saw the kind of, you know, it wasn't exactly a happy episode. Uh, I I think there are systematically bigger differences between us and the Conservatives and us and Labour. It's not always the case that we only get along when we're in opposition. If you look at eight years of coalition government between the Liberal Democrats and Labour in Scotland and the current coalition between us in Wales and previous attempts in Wales, and even going back further into history, the Lib Pact in the 1970s, I think the scope for cooperation between Liberal Democrats and Labour, depending on all sorts of things, who's the Labour leadership, you know, what the political circumstances, is generally bigger than the scope between Liberal Democrats and Conservatives. And that's particularly true at the moment when you have a particularly unpleasant and incompetent, xenophobic, nationalist, little Englander, Conservative Party in power
0: that point about scotland and wales is an important one and it's one that for example andrew adonis quite often forgets when yes, um yes, somebody who has who is so smart and so knowledgeable he um he makes remarkably error prone comments about how the lib dems only ever go into coalition with the tories and how evil the lib dems are in part completely over, overlooking a that record of scottish coalition government between uh, labor and the lib dems and of course that As you know, at the very moment that we're speaking and recording this, there is a Liberal Democrat minister in office, in power, in Wales, in turn, Kirsty, as the education secretary there. Um, But coming back to this question about what sort of cooperation may be helpful and what might be not helpful, obviously the backdrop against Paddy becoming party leader was the fallout from the merger between the Liberals and the SDP. And prior to that, the, at times, nearly amazingly successful, but also at times frustratingly uh, disorganised period of the Alliance Party where the two parties spent quite a lot, lot of time arguing with each other over things like allocation of seats as to who would stand where in elections. on That always struck me quite heavily influenced Paddy's approach that he looked at a huge amount of time and effort that was taken up in the 1980s between the Liberals and the SDP on seat negotiations and in part took the view that that's not time and effort well spent, especially if you've got parties that are further apart from each other and Lib Dems and Labour definitely further apart from each other than Liberals and SDP were um, and therefore he seemed to me to particularly look for ways to cooperate that don't involve seat deals.
1: Yes, that's absolutely correct um, and I think, you know, Paddy became an MP in 1983. So he was uh, an MP for most of the Alliance period, uh, which was 81 to 88 and saw all the enormous amounts of effort and time that were spent on dividing up seats and then sorting out selection processes, whether they might be joint selection or joint closed selection or joint open selection, all that kind of thing. So uh, when people talk about cooperation between opposition parties, they often automatically think of pacts to stand down in, uh, to mutually stand down in in seats and to divide up seats between them, in the same way that we did with the Greens and Plaid Cymru in uh, last year's election. And actually, that was suggested at various times in the 90s, particularly by Tony Blair, when he became Labour leader and was was starting on that long series of discussions with Paddy. They particularly talked about the idea of a, a seat pact in southwest England, where in most places, the Liberal Democrats looked clearly better. Um, place to beat the Conservatives than Labour did. But Paddy was always very clear that he wasn't, didn't want to talk about that, partly because of the experience of the Alliance. It was just a waste of time and it would just be very bitter. But also because it looked, um, I think he had a sense, and I think this is supported by opinion polls, that it, the electorate wouldn't regard that kind of thing very um, reasonably. They, they would see it as kind of unfair parties ganging up on uh, a government. Um, and it was kind of somehow removing the choice from them. So, uh, and there was a seat a opinion poll in the run-up to the 97 election that showed that um, actually at the time the Conservative government was so unpopular that that Liberal Democrat voters weren't particularly opposed to uh, Labor, uh, Liberal Democrats cooperating with Labour after um, the election in government, if that's what happened. But they were dead against any kind of seat deal that looked as though they were trying to, um, to gang up on the Conservatives. And that would have scared people who voted Tory in 1992, but thinking of voting Liberal Democrat in 1997, back to the Tories. So Paddy was always very clear we weren't ever going to talk about seat deals.
0: I guess what may have been different with the Unite to Remain arrangements last year is that arguably Brexit provided a reason that at least we hoped was going to be palatable to the public as to why arrangements between parties would feel like an act of principle rather than an act of organisational chicanery. I, 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 very hard to protect British politics at the moment but I guess it's more likely we'll be you know, in the run-up to the next election in a situation where those 1980s type and 1990s type viewpoints prevail rather than uh, the, the possibility of it being seen as a, a principled move.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think one thing you learn from political history is that there are almost no um, permanent truths and things are highly dependent on uh, circumstances. Um, and 9- 2019 was a bit different. though. Uh, there I would say, certainly look at John Curtis's analysis of the election results for the Journal of Liberal History, which we published in our last issue, um, uh, there was no evidence that the seat deals did us or the Greens or Blygonry any good at all. So, uh, but yeah, it was probably worth trying, I agree. But I think it will be the, the atmosphere now is a bit different um, whenever the next election might be, whether it's 2024 or sooner. Um, I think you're right, I think it'll be more like the mid to late 90s, where you know, there is a chance that um, the Conservative government will be deeply unpopular by then. And we have in Keir Starmer, someone who is uh, far less toxic to the electorate than Jeremy Corbyn. And I would, uh, well, this remains to be seen, I think, but far more open in principle, at least, to the idea of some kind of cooperation with liberal Democrats. So then it raises the question, which was the question that Blair and Ashdown um, addressed in the
0: 90s. What form does that cooperation take? Yeah and I guess that neatly leads on then to the question of okay if seat deals are going to be off the agenda, what is sensible to have on the agenda? Um, So what was it that Paddy Ashdown looked to do with the Labour Party?
1: Yeah, so there were three main uh, sort of themes, I think, three main approaches. And the first one, which he kicked off quite soon after the 1992 election in a a speech that Paddy gave in Chard, uh, it came known as the Chard speech, and he said later he thought it was the most important speech that he'd ever given in his career. He proposed um, the idea of cooperation on a policy agenda. So not talking about seat deals or electoral issues at all, um, but talking about trying to trying to form a kind of coherent view of an alternative to the ways in which the Conservative government is running the economy and running society. So um, it led to, he tried to focus on a number of issues like Europe. I remember we were going through the Maastricht uh, Treaty at the time and the uh, debates around the single European currency. Um, there was a growing agenda about constitutional reform which Labour hadn't been particularly active in, but obviously it was uh, one of our core strengths. He wanted to get Labour talking about that as well, uh, again in uh, against a, a background of I think increasing Frustration with the way in which the British state was governed, particularly in Scotland. You had the Scottish Constitutional Convention, but also to a certain extent in Wales. Um, you had uh, unhappiness with the electoral system and with the House of Lords, etc., etc., etc. And you had a big agenda about investment in public services, which, as uh, I said, the Conservatives were um, wasn't quite as brutal as austerity, but they were gradually running down health and education, and that was becoming more and more obvious. So the idea was that the two parties would start saying not necessarily exactly the same things because we were different parties, but similar things and developing a similar critique of the Conservative government. So it helped to create an atmosphere in amongst the electorate that it was the Tories that were wrong and that everybody else kind of sensible people like John Smith, Tony Blair, Paddy Ashdown uh, were actually right and they could possibly get on with each other. So the second thing was uh, that the two parties stopped or the the aim was that they stopped attacking each other. So they focused their um, attacks on the government particularly and that led to some parliamentary cooperation um in uh, occasionally they cooperated over prime minister's questions they tended to avoid criticizing each other too much in parliament and that's quite different of course from recent years when we've seen endless labor attacks on us mm. because of our participation in the coalition so i mean even if starmer and colleagues just stopped doing that that would immediately um create a bit of a difference um it led to some practical um that kind of cooperation led to some practical outcomes in that the two chief whips at the time, Archie Kirkwood for us and Donald Dewar for Labour, discovered that the Conservative whips were pairing the same Tory MPs against Labour and Liberal Democrat MPs. The idea is, you know, if you're paired, you can be absent from the House of Commons for constituency reasons or foreign trips or whatever. But the Tories were cheating, basically, by pairing you know, one of theirs against two opposition MPs. So they just by cooperating, they found that out and that was quite useful. And then the third thing, and this is kind of, The most exciting thing, well, I suppose there were four things really, but but the third thing that led to an outcome was um, the idea of covert cooperation in the run-up to and during the election. So, uh, obviously, we know pretty well, because we're used to targeting our resources during elections now, that there are plenty of seats where we can't possibly win. So, we try and focus our resources, financial resources and personnel, in the target seats. And the idea was that the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats would cooperate in doing that. They'd kind of share their own... Uh, their their information about what their own target seats were, and that happened. Um, So they would avoid putting lots of uh, effort into each other's target seats, Uh, and it helped of course in that there were relatively few cases where Labour and Liberal Democrats were fighting each other. I mean, where there were, there certainly was no let up in the contest, but mostly it was the Tories who were the enemy, and that's just as true now. And they uh, encouraged outside observers to weigh in on this and encourage tactical voting. So those are really important. stage at which the Daily uh, Mirror, the main Labour supporting tabloid, just before the 97 election, published a list of 22 seats where if Labour voters backed the Liberal Democrats, the Conservatives would be defeated. And in the event, the Liberal Democrats won 20 of them in the 1997 election. And the analysis of the 97 election, which was basically a Labour landslide, um, the, again, this is John Curtis, the, the, the country's favourite sophologist, concluded that the scale and impact of tactical voting in the 1997 election was unprecedented. And Labour gained between 15 and 21 seats, and the Liberal Democrats between 10 and 14 as a result of tactical switching to defeat Tory MPs. So that's a kind of major outcome where, again, you didn't have an electoral pact, but it affected
0: the, uh, the electoral outcome. I guess. There's a couple of things that feel quite different about politics now compared to then. One, which maybe also made that sort of cooperation of all the different forms that you've just mentioned, Duncan, easier than it might be now. One is the popularity of Tony Blair and that he was a phenomenally popular leader of the opposition uh, in a way that clearly Jeremy Corbyn never was. (laughs) Uh, But and, And actually, you know, Blair's heights of popularity were were well above, you know, even what Corbyn achieved at, you know, Corbyn's peak briefly in the 2017 election. Um, But also that the Liberal Democrats went into the 90s in a stronger position than the Liberal Democrats now. So after the, you know, the 1987 election felt like a crushing disappointment. The 1992 election was a bit of a disappointment as well. But in both cases, compared to where the Lib Dems are now, the party actually won many more seats and votes. And also the party's local government base was that much bigger. So that sense of, if the Lib Dems say, well, okay, we'll concentrate on those places where we are clearly established as the main rival to the Tories, and there's some places where clearly Labour is the main rival that will maybe soft-pedal a little bit, the, the, the relative size of those two areas... Was quite different from the relative size at the moment. And in particular, I think, and we saw a little bit of this with the general election last year, there are quite a few areas where I think the Lib Dems have got a really good, strong, and convincing case to make that we are the ones who can best beat the Tories. But unless one is completely myopically tribalist about it, you have to concede that in some of those cases, some of those places, Labour has a little bit of a case to make as well. Um, And one of the reasons the Tories didn't do at least a little bit worse at the, in the election is actually several seats where the Lib Dems did finish a very good strong second but with a very large Labour vote. Now for those seats next time round it may be more straightforward but it strikes me there is another batch of those seats as well where there's probably going to be a lot more scope for disagreement between the parties than there was in the 1990s as to how who was really the challenger. Although there were some places like that um, Hastings, I guess, would be a good example where both Labour and Lib Dems claimed we were the real challengers um, to the Tories. <clears throat> so I, I do wonder whether part of the success, actually, of what Paddy did in the mid-1990s really was only possible because of his success in the first few years of his, of his leadership, uh, partly in making sure the party didn't disappear, <laughs> obviously, but also then in beginning to rebuild the breadth of the party support and that we perhaps need much more of that breadth of support rebuilding. And that's an important part of the story that we mustn't forget, even though last time that happened to be much more spread out over two parliaments. Yes, I completely agree
1: with that. And I mean, you know, nobody would uh, accuse Paddy of neglecting building up the party and uh, restoring it uh, and building its local government base. And that's, that's completely, in fact, a precondition for everything I've just been talking about. We have to have a strong party that appears to be able to uh, win seats in places where Labour can't, if this is worth talking about at all. But just actually going back to 1992, I mean, none of what we've talked about was obvious then when Paddy started this process. The party had just torn itself apart over over the previous four years, particularly 1988, 1990, um, during the period when Paddy claimed that um, the Liberal Democrats' support in the opinion polls at one point was just an asterisk. There was no um, no detectable support There's whatsoever. Actually, that,
0: was, that,
1: as anyone that was a complete does. urban myth, and it was never true, um, but it was made a good story, um, like a number of things that Paddy said, um, but I think we did fall as low we did fall as low as four percent i think in some opinion polls during the worst period so in you know there are some parallels with the last uh five years post coalition um the local government base have been really badly affected during those two years i'm not sure it went quite as low as it has done recently no, but it didn't start to recover until 1993 94 95 thing when the really big games were made um and uh, certainly by sort of 95 the liberal democrats looked in a much better much stronger position than they had been in 1992 so it does depend very much what happens over the next few years and of course you know because of coronavirus it's just impossible to predict how that will happen starmer might uh, end up as a really effective Uh, Respected leader not like to be as popular as Blair I think but he might be you know he might be quite effective or he might fail in the same way that that perhaps Kinect did you know we don't know but I think uh, in the current circumstances where we have a conservative government that almost everything it's doing is uh, you know as anti-liberal democrat as you can you can get it's worth uh, at least perhaps thinking about whether we want to lay the 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 framework, the foundations for this kind of cooperation, which we can take the opportunity of if uh, politics turns out the way in which we hope it it will. So I think um, kind of uh, trying to stimulate that kind of... shared debate around policy priorities uh, that we saw in the mid 90s uh, and of course at the moment when British politics and the economy and public services is just completely everything is being turned on its head actually this is a really good moment to be talking about that and trying to develop at least informal links between the two parties uh, in the way that, that Ashdown did over quite a long period from 1992 to 94 just trying to you know talk to people behind the scenes have dinners with them have discussions with them John Smith was never particularly open to that but Tony Blair was and uh, actually Paddy started talking to him before he became leader even trying to identify the people you might be able to create a more kind of positive relationship with I think all those things are worth doing um, and you know otherwise we face the prospect of another conservative majority in four years time.
0: And we've talked quite a lot about what Paddy did that worked um, I guess one of the risks always with trying to learn from history is that you only look at things that turned out well and the people who were successful and in paddy however tried an awful lot of different things during his time as leader so are there any in amongst the mix of things that he tried that didn't work out are there any that sort of stand out for you as bringing particularly useful lessons for the present duncan
1: yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I, I realise actually that I didn't mention one thing that I think did work, which was the, I talked about the shared framework of um, discussion on constitutional reform. Of course, I should have mentioned the Cook-McLennan process, which mm. was the a small group put together led by Bob McLennan for us and Robin Cook for the Labour Party uh, from 1996 to 97, which led to a statement, a joint statement published on a list of priorities for constitutional reform, uh, which were pretty much um, mostly implemented by the Labour Party after they got in in 1997. So I mean that's a that's a good example of the kind of thing you can do. Now also um, that's kind of nice uh, lead into one of the things that clearly went wrong because one of the things on the Cook-McLannan reports list was proportional representation for Westminster elections and of course this is always the big prize for us and it always has to be the big prize for us. Um, uh, and uh, what Labour committed to was to set up a commission on voting systems, which they did uh, under Roy Jenkins. So, you know, that was a good start. And it reported in 1998 with uh, advocating an additional member system of PR, Um, but then Labour also had the commitment released It was in the McClellan report that there would be a referendum on the new system versus the existing system. And Labour completely reneged on that agreement and uh, rubbished the report publicly um, as soon as it came out. And Blair was entirely neutral. So, um, part of the problem was, of course, that. In effect, in many ways, the cooperation of the two parties was too successful, um, though this was uh, obviously reinforced by the Conservative government's utter incompetence and uselessness um, in the mid to late 1990s under John Major. So that led to the 1997 election being a complete Labour landslide, as I said, so that the case for any kind of coalition between Liberal Democrats and Labour, which had been talked about, and that was the kind of one of the more covert things that being been talked about in the run up to the election. Between Ashdown and Blair, even if Labour had a small majority, they thought there might be a case for a, a kind of progressive coalition government. Clearly, that was completely destroyed when the Labour Party has a majority of, I think, 179 over all other parties. Mm-hmm. So um, it was clearly a disappointment. It didn't lead to PR and the Labour Party's entrenched views on that. Uh, they obviously benefited from the first past the post system. You know, they didn't get a majority of the vote in '97, um, so they wanted to carry on benefiting from it, and that is a problem. And I think that's something that Starmer has to address if we are going to be serious about trying this kind of approach with the Labour Party now. Um, and then it led to, um, uh, in place of that, there was a joint consultative committee set up between Labour cabinet ministers and Liberal Democrat um, spokespeople. Um, and it's not really clear that it really led to anything. And I think by that stage, we're talking about sort of 98 um, through to when Paddy resigned uh, as leader in 99. He'd, be kind of, he'd become, I think, fixated on trying to pursue the project to some kind of outcome, even when actually it was becoming increasingly clear that it couldn't, didn't have anywhere else to go. had run out of road. The Labour Party was never going to be serious about doing anything about PR or about anything else. So whether the Joint Consultative Committee really led to anything, no one's actually really studied or analysed. Um, I hope if I ever have some spare time, I hope to be able to do that. Um, but uh it was the kind of it was the sort of consolation prize that paddy was clinging to and he became increasingly uh I- increasingly alienated from his activists who increasingly didn't understand why we were being so friendly to the labor party which had uh, the massive majority in house commons didn't need us anyway and was starting to do lots of things like on civil liberties or public services that we didn't really agree with so um but I think Paddy was realising that, you know, by that point, he was nearing the end of his leadership anyway. Uh, and it was probably just as well that he resigned when he did. Otherwise, I think things could have been, become much less pleasant, much more unpleasant between uh, Paddy and the, the party as a whole.
0: Yeah, the, thinking back to my reaction as a party member at the time to the announcement of the Joint Cabinet Consultative Committee, and one of the things that I think underpinned a lot of the anger in the party was a sense of, surely the only purpose of this is in some way to cosy up to the Labour Party, is it going to somehow lead to merger, etc. Because by that time, the Labour Party was in government and we were in opposition. And I think this reinforces the point we were talking about earlier, that the bigger political context massively matters. Joint Parties, both of whom are in opposition, can have a degree of common purpose on some issues, that people who even in one party really dislike the other can nonetheless recognise there is a degree of common interest that isn't undermining the fact that you're different parties, where a party in opposition is cooperating with a party in government in some way, those fears are much greater, and I think justifiably so, because there is less scope in that sense for common ground, because if the party in power has a majority, I should maybe sort of add that caveat, then in a sense they don't need the opposition party whilst parties that are both in opposition do have a shared objective of something they both want to change. Just though, yeah, um, to go back yes, to electoral reform that. point, it was interesting you were used to the word referendum there, because I think there are there are two possible problems if, if, you know, Lib Dems decide to set out our stall for wanting a referendum on electoral reform. One is the whole concept of referendums, which back in the 1980s and into the 90s seemed like quite a, progressive, almost daring form of desirable constitutional reform. Referendums have a bit of a different reputation now. The idea has not aged well. The other though is that crucially having a referendum takes time and the the moment of maximum negotiating leverage that a smaller opposition party has in a hung parliament, I think almost always is in the first few days of that hung parliament. You've got a leader of another party who really wants to become prime minister. You've got where, and you can agree things, and if you agree things that will happen fairly quickly, you can have quite a degree of confidence in them. Where things are instead pitched off into the future, there's a much higher risk. And we saw that with the AV referendum, and indeed with House of Lords reform in 2010 to 15, where things are pitched further off into the future, there's a much higher risk that they will become undone in some ways. And it strikes me that on that particular point, the, the sort of the lesson from what didn't happen almost is that if you're going to make electoral reform a top priority, it probably has to be a top priority that is just do it rather than a, let's have a referendum and hope that nothing goes wrong and we don't get sunk in the interim.
1: Um, So I agree with that. And I have to say my position on referendums has been totally consistent. Um, I was policy director for the party, the first policy director, actually, after the merger from 88 to 94. So I had quite a lot to do with Paddy, who was, of course, chair of the policy committee for the whole of that period. And I remember standing in his office, and he was going on about the wonders of referendums, which was sort of part of his general approach that he wanted to look for ways to engage citizens Mm. more in politics and he thought referendums would play a useful role and i remember saying i think i'm against referendums in any circumstance and i remember him saying that's interesting but I don't remember what he said after that, which was probably some kind of denunciation of my position. Um, Maybe so, like yeah. remembered it. Your memory <laughs> blanked out the 12-minute rant you then had. <laughs> That's entirely possible, though. He wasn't always that ranty in, in no. private. Um, so, yeah, and, and my views have been completely reinforced, of course, by the experience of the AV referendum in 2011 and the European referendum in 2016. So I think you're right. I think if we're um, if it is possible to construct a, a sort of shared agenda on some issues, like constitutional reform, with the Labour Party before the next election, I think we have to aim for legislation for PR, not a referendum. You do it straight away. It's in both parties' manifestos. If they manage to get uh, a majority between the two of them or just one of them,
0: then we just do it. We don't worry about referendum. And I guess the other element that the lessons, thinking back to the lessons of the 1980s and 1990s, sort of highlights, for me, is this importance of having a political strategy that gives you a sense of achievement a possible sense of achievement on the staging post between being a small party and being a one-party majority government although of course actually a liberal democrat one-party majority government would not last for very long because we'd immediately introduced pr and therefore probably re- lose our majority And um, but the, one of the things that paddy's approach gave was a sense of, okay, although it was a party with a small number of MPs, this is a party that could be part of making things happen and really changing the direction of the country. And that is crucial for recruiting and retaining and invigorating support. Yeah, I think that's right, actually. And I think you could see what he tried to do
1: over over a number of uh, different areas. One was was targeting of resources much more ruthlessly uh, on winnable constituencies and building up the local party infrastructure there, and it's interesting. I mean, people remember nineteen ninety-seven as a great triumph for us. We went up from twenty seats in uh, ninety-two to forty-six in ninety-seven, but our actually vote fell by one, one and a half points. So we were we were targeting. Now there were problems with targeting, but you know, in terms of delivering MPs, it really worked there. Second thing, obviously, building up a local government base, and that was that was tremendously successful. And the third thing is absolutely contributing muscling into the debate around policy options, about policy issues, and contributing something that is different from what the other parties are doing. And Paddy, I think, was really good at that. Um, For example, 1989, when he was the only party leader to call for giving Hong Kong citizens, British Hong Kong citizens, the right of abode in the UK after the Tiananmen Square massacre, which received you know received loads of criticism about you know being flooded with Chinese immigrants but actually gained him a lot of respect as well and it was all about fairness about standing up for our commitments there was later on there was the constitutional reform agenda and then of course there was the penny on income tax for education which was just the kind of ideal, policy really in that it was different from what both other parties were saying because Labour was being very fiscally responsible at the time and saying we'll stick to Tory uh, spending plans when we get into power Um, and the Tories are obviously cutting public services. We wanted to put up tax which nobody else was talking about to pay for investment in public services and we identified ourselves with education which has always been one of the Liberal Democrats. Uh, core strength. And I think he had a lot to say on the environmental agenda as well, which was kind of beginning to emerge into um, more into public debate at the time. So I think what is essential for our new leader, um, whenever we get them, uh, is that they make sure the party has interesting new things to say on the policy agenda, as well as building up the party infrastructure um, in terms of parliamentary and local government elections.
0: And I guess that leads on to one other point about what the pitch is. <laughs> and what works effectively in that I think one area where that didn't quite work under Paddy Ashdown was communicating to voters the importance of electoral reform because it does seem to me there is an inherent risk that if we say electoral reform is the absolute red line and that what has to be delivered in a hung parliament for us to in any way cooperate with a party being in power we also need the public to firstly know that that's going to be our red line And that's maybe one of the lessons of 2010 to make sure what the public think they're voting for. And then what we do afterwards is very closely aligned. So the public has to know that's our red line. But it's potentially quite a tricky red line to have because although you and I both correctly think electoral reform is massively important. For many members of the public, they require quite a lot of persuasion on that. And the risk is that we have as a red line something that feels irrelevant to them. Now, I guess Paddy sort of, didn't i think and the party as a whole didn't really get that right in 92 in part you know in the run up to 97 i the reaction of the of the to the lessons from 92 was to talk about more than just electoral reform but probably in a way that went so far as to really downplay electoral reform as really being any particular red line i think trying to find some sort of happy medium between those two would very much be a challenge for the party now i don't know if you've got any reflections on that risk of making something a red line that many members of the public say at least initially we're not really going to qualify
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think in general, I think I'm against red lines as a whole, uh, or at least being very public about your red lines, because it ends up boxing you into a corner and you end up doing things like signing a pledge on tuition fees and then having to break it. Um, I think you need to have red lines internally, but you can never predict exactly the circumstances they're going to be after the election. And, you know, a coalition or confidence and supply arrangement with one party might be better, even if you don't get all your red lines, than the alternative, which might be, you know, the Tories staying in power on the minority mm. government or something. So I think I think it's a mistake to emphasise your red lines too much. But having said that, clearly it is really important, as we were talking about before, that um, if there is going to be any kind of arrangement between Labour and the Liberal Democrats, any kind of cooperation, it does lead to proportional representation, if that's at all possible. So I think the important thing for the next few years is to is to move Labour in that direction. Uh, by any means, informal, formal, public, private, any means we could think of to try and uh, persuade Labour that that's the right thing they want to do. Um, I think it's always likely to be something that's not worth talking about enormous amount um uh, during the election campaign um as you said uh, we stressed it too much i think during the 1992 election and it scared voters back to uh, the tories in the last uh, couple of weeks uh, we didn't really talk about the 97 election at all it was much more about public services And i think that's probably right but there's a kind of there's a i think we need to if there's any way that we can we can move the Labour leadership in that direction um, and uh, make sure it's an absolutely cast-iron commitment in their manifesto and what they'll do afterwards, then I think that's the, that's the prize we ought to be aiming at.
0: Brilliant. Thank you, Duncan. I guess it's just worth adding that obviously on quite a lot of these issues that we've talked about, there's quite a range of opinion in the party and I very much have sort of gone for asking you questions, as it were, rather than particularly setting out my own views on them in part because it's very much for the party members in the end to make the decision. And I think certainly my role as party president, a key element is making sure that members get the chance to make the key decisions on the strategy and direction of the party. And that will partly be through uh, the leadership election when that, you know, when that happens and making sure that it's a well-run contest that properly involves members, probably in some more innovative ways, given coronavirus and the like but also things like the party strategy process could be a little bit of a dull thing that results in a business motion that almost nobody's in the hall for, or it could be a much more vibrant and effective process. And I think it's really important given the sorts of issues that we've talked about, that it's the latter rather than the former. But just before we wrap up, Um, Obviously, lots of listeners are, at the moment, spending rather more time reading than usual, so I just thought, Duncan, as somebody who has written and edited and read so many books, what would be the best book related to politics or policymaking that you've read in the last year that you'd maybe recommend to listeners?
1: So I'm going to cheat um, here. Uh, for two reasons one because I want to get in the plug for the Liberal Democrat History Group's publications <laughs> uh, which if you have plenty of time we publish the Journal of Liberal History uh, which is a quarterly journal the next one is due to come out in about two weeks time and you can subscribe via our website um, www.liberalhistory.org.uk um, and we cover a whole range of issues from the kind of very early days of liberal thought yeah. up to uh, yesterday uh, for example our last issue had uh, as I mentioned before John Curtis's analysis of 97 mm-hmm. elections and we have a range of books and booklets um, longer and shorter kind of summaries of liberal history that I think I think everybody should uh, be reading uh, obviously all the time um, on my own um uh, my own reading now in fact i read quite a lot of politics and policy stuff for work reasons so i tend to um, relax more by reading about history and fiction so i can't give you a good politics book in the last year that i've read but i can go slightly further back uh, mm. and uh, recommend one that i read um, i think two or three years ago and reviewed for the journal of liberal history which is david law's coalition diaries Um, So Laws, of course, was instrumental during the coalition um, as uh, one of Nick Clegg's lieutenants, and I regularly disagreed with him on policy issues, but I have to say he's written the most interesting analysis of the coalition, uh, and I think he was a really effective fighter for many liberal democrat views during the coalition the the first book he came out just called coalition uh, is a kind of worthy and not terribly exciting analysis of how it worked and what happened i think yeah it's definitely worth reading but coalition diaries which is as i said just extracts from the diaries he kept during the whole period is much more exciting read uh, it's quite long but you do get real feeling for just the pressures and stresses that um Liberal Democrat ministers operated under. And also, it's really entertaining uh, because he dealt with Michael Gove. uh, He was a junior minister in the Department of Education when he came back, uh, when Gove uh, was Secretary of State and Dominic Cummings was his special advisor. And some of the sheer... Bonkers' nature of Gove and Cummings is really well picked out in the diaries, and I particularly like the episode when Michael Gove fled into his own toilet and hid there until David Laws uh, left the room, um, when he was trying to avoid talking to Laws about some outrageous things that Gove and Cummings had done. So I recommend it. It's a good, fun read, and you can dip in and out of it.
0: And actually, another good, fun read from David Laws that's rather shorter is his book about the death of Lord Kitchener in the First World War, which I read last year, and is a really, really interesting, really enjoyable read, even if it's an air, a topic that you know quite a lot about, and it's a really interesting book. But for those who maybe only know of Lord Kitchener as maybe that person whose recruitment poster is so regularly pastiche now, there's an awful lot yeah, uh, a fun and enlightenment to be had from that i 'll include links to uh, all of those in the show notes as well as links to a couple of uh, previous episodes of this podcast, including the one in which uh, which was recorded shortly after paddy 's untimely death um, uh, a few months back, which sort of pays tribute and where we uh, sort of Stephen and I have a look at his record as party leader, uh, coming, I think, to fairly similar conclusions as we've come to in this podcast, but listeners can can compare and contrast, uh, takes on Paddy's time as leader. Um, and finally, therefore, just to say, uh, you can find Duncan on Twitter at Duncan Brack, myself uh, at Mark Pack, or this podcast on at Bar Chart Podcast. And if you like listening, please do tell others about this podcast and review or rate it in your favourite podcast app. Thank you very much.